listening to Adjective New Music's podcast, Lexical Tones. I'm your host, Rob McClure. Detailed, explicit, dense. Christopher Biggs is a composer and multimedia artist residing in Kalamazoo, Michigan, where he is associate professor of music composition and technology at Western Michigan University. His recent projects focus on integrating live instrumental performance with interactive audiovisual media. Biggs is a co-founder and the director of the Splice Institute, which is a week-long intensive summer program for performers and composers to experience, explore, create, discuss, and learn techniques related to music for instruments and electronics. Biggs teaches acoustic and electronic music composition, electronic music production, digital signal processing, visual programming, and music theory. Just a little note before we get started. Occasionally there is some high frequency distortion in Chris's feed. Not really sure why it happened, but um, it doesn't really affect your ability to understand what he's saying. So uh, we just decided to leave it in. Hope it doesn't bother you. Chris, good to see you. We're going to see each other in like just, I guess, just a couple weeks at EMM. Um, yeah. But uh, I wanted to start off with one of your pieces called Displaced. And this is a piece for cello, bass, harp, piano, and computer that you wrote for Ensemble Dal Niente. And reading uh, what you wrote about the piece on your website and in the score, you said the work reflects on the current refugee crisis. And this was written in 2016. The current refugee crisis and the increase in refugees that will result due to climate instability. So... I mean, this was written in 2016. It, it doesn't seem like anything's changed, you know, for at least for the better. <laughs> yeah. So, so what kind of uh, in 2016? What kind of triggered you to engage with this topic? Um, 2016 was right around when, if I remember correctly, or well, I mean, I started writing the piece um, pretty early that year. Uh, right around when a lot of coverage of Syria was occurring, mm-hmm. the Syrian refugee crisis. Um, but the Yemen refugee crisis was starting and getting bigger. And at the same time, I was reading about water resources and how that will probably be in flux. And obviously, it's been three years and the predictions and expectations are significantly worse now. So just reading about it and thinking about if I wanted to represent that musically. And I did about three kind of climate change pieces um, and this is the one that has the kind of direct human element. Um, and it's the most theatrical in that um, there's a video online. But what occurs is that the players actually mimic playing and they get kind of separated from their instruments. And by the end, they're not playing their instruments at all. Um, they're just mimicking what the electronics are doing. The hmm. idea being that they've become kind of unable to engage with what they're familiar with so they're kind of displaced from where they're comfortable which is actually playing their instrument and they're mimicking playing so you said that you wrote kind of three um climate change works um are the are like these kind of news worthy topics i mean that's it's not like you know it's not just because the news is covering it. It's, it's pretty much a human topic at this point. But um, are, the, are these like kind of political or cultural things? Do you go to that a lot when you're writing? Or was, was this something specific that you just had to kind of address with your music? Um, I think a lot of my music has 
explicit extra musical themes and they're frequently about what I'm interested in or what I have been interested in. And um, I didn't go to undergrad for um, undergrad uh, education um, for music. I went for journalism because I had more activist leanings and I was going to do that. And then I've stopped doing that, but I still uh, engage a lot with political content and whatever I'm into kind of informs extra musical content. Now, I don't think that there's a strong relationship between any extra musical content and abstract music unless there's actual semantic words. Mm -hmm. Um, But it still informs me and I feel like uh, whatever I'm thinking about and doing while I'm writing um, informs what I'm writing. And then I think that I am for sharing that as part of the process as opposed to not sharing it. So I'm just explicit about what I think something is about, um, but I hope it holds up as abstract music. Right, right, right. So you were saying that there are there are moments in this piece where the the players are kind of pantomiming and that that's creating a theatrical element and they are they're responding to the electronic sounds by pantomiming their instruments, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, they have written out parts oh, okay. that um they they pantomime that they don't play that they the idea uh, they play increasingly physically far away from their instrument like mm-hmm. eventually the pianist is kind of standing up and waving hands um, but they're doing it they're supposed to be in precise rhythmic alignment with the electronics and in this piece the electronics are all triggered fixed media which are performed by a percussionist um, who conducts so that way they can be super accurate um, because I forget how many cues there are but there are a significant number. Um, so they can be very accurate, so the, the they can get conducted in, and then they do their fake their fake playing away from their instrument. Um, and the amount that they play off of their instruments as opposed to on their instruments just increases until they they don't play very much for like the last minute of the piece. Right. You know, while I was I, I looked at your score, which which you've uh, provided on your website for for this piece and a, and a lot of your pieces, and as I was looking at the computer part and seeing like the rhythmic uh preciseness that it had to be i actually wrote down in my notes it doesn't seem like you would have to be a percussionist to play the computer part but it wouldn't hurt like there's some really kind of tricky rhythmic uh things in there to be able to to be able to cue on time so yeah yeah. i think anybody um who plays in uh, that ensemble in particular but any contemporary music ensemble could play the part but i think it'd be very hard to conduct and play it yeah. the way that the percussionist from Ensemble Down Dante did. Um, the piece was done by a different ensemble, and they used an actual conductor. Mm, okay. Um, as opposed to having the person doing the computer part conduct. So they they're responding to the electronics, the electronic sounds, which are you know written out. What are some of the samples for this piece? Because it seems like there are at least a few samples that are taken directly from the instruments that are playing uh, but those are just really really highly processed yeah it's actually all the contact factory like default library orchestral sounds uh-huh okay um, uh, so i forget which piano um but yeah just the the cello the bass and um the harp harps and pianos are super easy to yeah. make them sound like they're something cello and bass are not as easy Um, But I just do stuff and like you say, they're highly processed, but the majority of the sounds are samples from those instruments in the contact library. They're not um, anything I took from the specific players and they're not captured in real time. Okay. So is that all of the sounds that they're all from the contact library and they're all, they all existed first as, you know, kind of instrumental samples that you then just like process the hell out of, or is there anything else in there? 
uh, synthesis. Okay. Um, so a decent amount of synthesis, and in this piece, it's just in massive. I think. Um, I think massive and, and absent. That's it. Mm-hmm. So it's native instruments complete. <laughs> right. Piece. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it seems like there's you're setting up this a kind of duality between the live instrumentalists and the electronic sounds, almost as almost as if we are kind of hearing the present of of this you know uh of this crisis and then we're also hearing the future in the electronic sounds being highly processed highly distorted almost in distress in a way Mm -hmm. yeah i mean because there's a lot of distortion on those in a way that you don't get even um you know with somebody scratching on a cello or something you can get much more vicious distortion um with electronics so there's much more, there's distortion and also i think the the idea is that oh the memories of things become lost over time and so as like you leave where you are at first you're kind of unable to you don't understand how to go about processes to be successful because you've lost your grounding in what you do every day and how that leads to the outcomes that you expect so you're you, you're displaced, and then as those memories fade, that still might be the place you want to be or the place that you love, but you're no longer able to exactly have a clear picture of it. Yeah. So the electronics start to like they represent distress, you say, particularly at the beginning, and then they come to kind of represent these memories of having done this thing um, uh, in your. Well, I guess it's kind of um, the metaphor between being an instrumentalist and loving to play your instrument and being at home is kind of the overarching metaphor of the piece. So I'm kind of complaining my language when I'm talking about it, but the idea that <clears throat> you start, you stop remembering um, and all you have is these faded memories of, of this thing after you've left. In this piece, how are you working through, uh, working through pitch? I know there's a lot of like extended techniques on all of the instruments, but um, is there some kind of system at work here or are you intuitively making these Pitch choices? Um, there's the kind of melodic part that occurs in the cello, mm-hmm. um, which is, I think, the I would consider the start of the second large section. And that's the primary, that's the first thing that I wrote, even though it's not at the beginning. And the pitch material largely comes from there, um, which ended up being, uh, so what I often do is I write stuff and then I analyze it and then I extract from that and I see why I think I liked it. And then I use that and I carry it forward. So it's not particularly systemic, but it's highly integrated, and it ends up being largely a um, an augmented triad with a half step. Okay. Um, yeah, which so, is pretty so, common pitch class set. Yeah. Tetrachord. <laughs> yeah. So, but but then like after you, so you kind of write from an intuitive place, you go through an analysis process, and then coming out of that, you go into. It sounds like in this case, at least, you go into a set based kind of world where you're making you know use using the um the different transformations that you can in that in that world but still have a very integrated uh sound world that stems from that intuitive place yeah i think that's a good way to describe it i mean i do sometimes write 12 tone music and, Mm -hmm. and things like that or um have some kind of system but usually i don't stick to those even when i have them and more normally it's that exactly what you say i like set theory i like problem solving i like trying to do certain things with pitches and seeing if they if they work how i think they will in my imagination 
um, and just playing with stuff. So I, I do, yeah, usually write, get to something I like, and then analyze. And often, like in this piece, um, the thing that's kind of the fundamental prime idea is something that's worked towards. It's not something that happens right away. Right. Where did the where did the instrumentation come from for this piece? It's a lot of low instruments. Or, yeah, it wasn't or they, so, instruments that can be low. Yeah, there was supposed to be a oboe player, not a double bassist. That was the mm. group that we were uh, writing for. And then the um, we, as in me and my colleague here, uh, and then the um, double ba- the oboist was unable to come for some reason, and they switched it out in a very reasonable time frame. So it wasn't like last minute. It was like um, seven months in advance or something. Mm-hmm. But yes, and then how- partially circumstantial. Okay. And then how did you, how, how did this project with Dal Niente come up in the first place? Um, well, we've had them to, we have, uh, I teach music composition at Western Michigan University, and we have them come out um, just about every year to do readings of student pieces and to do a concert. Um, and we kind of um, became friends through that and then uh, ended up asking for a piece. And so they came back and, and did it here. Awesome. Well, let's listen to it now. So we're going to hear that ensemble on this recording and uh, let's listen to it. So this is Displaced.
Let's move on to your piece, Tar. And this is uh, for flute, accordion, and computer. And this was uh, done by the Collect Project. So who, 
who's the Collect Project and how did you get connected with them? Um, <clears throat> fairly similar to Del Niente. They had come out here. Uh, the person based in Chicago is um, uh, Shauna Gutierrez, and she's the flutist. And the accordionist is Ava Zollner, and she's in Germany. And Francisco um, uh, Caballero is in uh, New York City now. Um, so they have this kind of, oh, and the vocalist is Frauke, um, whose last name I don't remember how to say right mm-hmm. now. Um, it's like, I don't remember. Yeah, it's okay. <laughs> um, uh, but, well, you, did, well uh, you didn't work with voice in this piece. Yeah, anyway, so that's right. probably why. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think I said Francisco's name wrong. Francisco Castillo Trigueros. I wasn't even close, but there is a C <laughs> that starts the second There is part. a C. <laughs> yeah. But the, they had, they applied, we were part of a grant that they applied for to come do a tour in the U.S. at um, Bowling Green, Western, some place in Chicago. Um, and so we uh, wrote for them as part of this grant, and they came out um, uh, and did this little tour. Um, so they had come a few years ago, circumstantially, and then again, same similar thing with Downiente. We ended up just talking and uh, being part of this other project. Awesome. Is this? It looks like this is one of your most recent works. It seems like you have maybe a couple others that you've finished or are in the process of finishing. But this is this is 2019. This is pretty new. Yeah, I think this is the the most recent thing I've finished that has been played. Yeah. In this piece. Can you talk about how you, and, and it could be for this piece, it could be for the one we just heard, it could be at really for any of your pieces, but can you talk about how you generate rhythm in particular in this piece? Um, are you thinking about gesture? Are you thinking about mathematical relationships? What, like, what's going on with rhythm with you? Um, I, I rely more on artifice when I have less time. Mm. So I didn't have a lot of time for this piece. So um, I don't have, I should have the score in front of me, but I don't. But um, there's a part before the climax where the rhythmic values kind of shorten and it leads into the loudest section. Mm -hmm. And if you listen closely, that's a rhythmic pattern that occurs kind of where you feel the pulse clearly at the quarter note. And if you took way more time than anyone would want to, um, there's sections where it's like, oh, what is a beat of relationships is about five beats of relationships. And then it's four, but it's not linearly. So it's five beats of relationships and then three and then four and then one. And then it pushes to the climax. So it, the the rhythm the rhythm of this is very very systemic. It's um, very structured and uh, planned and plotted um, to kind of create an overall drive um, in a in a certain direction. Okay, I mean, it sounds like the the, the last piece we listened to it was it was almost two hundred different samples and no live electronics. In complete opposition to the last piece, this piece the. This is all, all the electronic sounds are generated interactively, correct? Yep. Correct. Sorry, did we, do we have a lag? Uh, yeah, you, it's, it, it's, it was like generated interactively. <laughs> <laughs> it was good. Cool. <laughs> um, okay, well. All right, I, but yes, the 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 answer is still yes, even uh, though um, the interactive generation of your voice was unexpected. 
I mean, it sounds like, you know, it, it sounds like there's so much processing going on in this piece. I mean, I cannot imagine the beast of a max patch that this must be. What kinds of things are you doing? Um, so the, the main like kind of effects are things like, like guitar pedal effects, like flange ring modulation. Um, but they're, um, two reverb sends there's grain delay. I think there's about eight or nine streams of effects mm-hmm. and they're all matrixly be routable. So any one can be routed to any other one. Okay. Um, the thing that I started to do in this that now I'm developing, uh, in more detail because, um, Max has now that MC thing, which is just phenomenal. Yeah. But um, it's a fully matrixable side chaining. So all the signals are tracked for how loud they are. And you can route any one to control the loudness of any other or any group to control the loudness of any other. So in this piece in particular, it's like the flute and the accordion, often when they play, the electronics duck under they get quieter in response um and then some some effects will actually only come on when they play so i can have feedback times that are extreme right so there's always an an effect going but it will only react and actually come out when the accordion or the flute get over a certain volume Uh uh-huh um okay so and so all the effects so sometimes you know like um maybe uh I don't know. I want like the delay, like a, this is not in the piece, but it's just an example, like a delay. And every time that delayed sound comes back, I don't want, for instance, a, I don't know, a synthesizer to be as loud. So when that delay comes back, it makes the synthesizer quiet, or I can do the inverse where they contribute to each other. And it's, again, any quantity of signals can be summed to control any other signal, which is, I I think it's a powerful thing. And it's kind of like what, uh, if you've heard, if anybody's heard of Neutron, um, it's kind of what Isotope is doing with Neutron, um, uh-huh. which is a neat thing where it's like mixing for you in the background. Yeah. Yeah. That's, I mean, that's really powerful. That Because I, w- I was just trying to imagine, you know, in, <laughs> in, in the type of stuff that I do, I was trying to imagine all of these effects and control, not, not like building the effects, but just controlling them. Because you have so many things going on simultaneously that have their own you know envelopes and 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 uh their own like uh spectrum morphologies and it just seems like oh my god i would not want to control that but it seems like you've you've built something to kind of do the work for you that's awesome yeah and it's both so that's kind of the amplitude like tracking and mixing thing that i mean you still have to put in all the parameters for every every preset and stuff like that but then in terms of like um generating the parameters for all these effects uh, increasingly what I'm doing so they're not stagnant. So you mentioned the rhythm in this piece. There's like, you know, quintuplets and things mm-hmm. and whatnot. So the performers put in a tempo and then it generates the rhythmic durations that different effects will occur. Mm-hmm. And it will fill in like, what are the millisecond divisions of quintuplets, 16th notes, et cetera. And those will be in a, in a you know, I don't know, I'll just call it a file that then is, then you can grab those as milliseconds. It also generates um, the hertz, like the frequencies for all those yeah. things. So then you can use those for you know tremolos or whatever else. So, and then in t- instead of controlling all that data, I usually just set ranges for things. And then I have, a, again, a rhythmic unit at which it updates um, uh, periodically. So a lot of it gets automated in the background. Once an effect is turned on, all those automatic generation things just turn on. 
Uh, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. It makes a whole lot of sense. That's that's yeah. awesome. <laughs> so it's either like if 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 you know this effect streams at negative sixty decibels, that just zeros it off, and yeah. if nothing, as soon as it goes above that, it 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 you know unmutes the effect, and it also turns on all the automatic um, max messaging. Mm. That sounds pretty good. <laughs> so you found some awesome sounds for the accordion, especially in the low register. What was your research phase like for for finding these sounds and figuring out just how to write for the accordion? I mean, I'm I'm guessing it's not your primary instrument. No, and it's not. Uh, I didn't know there's like this giant um, classical like uh, accordion tradition in in Europe and in particular Germany where people get all degrees in accordion. They like play Bach and everything. Mm -hmm. um, I didn't know. But Ava basically just sent me scores and she told me what book to get from interlibrary loan. And she um, has these manual, like these things that she's like six or seven pages of notes that she sent that from presentations she's done. And so I just studied that and then I would send her little check-ins asking her questions if something this or that would work. And so basically it was in integrated um, working with the performers at every step and they would say yes or no. One of your adjectives uh, that you sent was dense. I think it really applies to this piece. I mean, where does this or where does your fascination with dense textures come from? I mean, it kind of reminds me somewhat of Jackson Pollock's kind of all over visual aesthetic in a way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it's interesting. I, I don't know exactly where it comes from. I like to not know what's going on all the time. I think my particular trajectory is that when I started my master's degree, I, I things sounded crazy to me, and I was really into bang on a can uh -huh. and post-minimalism. And then at some point, that switched and... Um, uh, I started to hear pitch relationships differently and I didn't need a rhythmic grid. And then I, if I could figure out what was going on, and it's probably always been this way even before then, but I wasn't challenged as much as I was until I did a master's in music. You're constantly, uh, I think I would constantly in my musical life just get bored when I understand what's going on when I listen. Right, yeah. You need something out there that is still pushing you in some way, pushing you to listen, pushing you to question. And just where you can't, where it's... Um, ungraspable like you just can't possibly take in all of the details looking for the audience to have that kind of perception where they're not there's no way to take in everything but what they do take in is meaningful and memorable hopefully to them or maybe not it's not even that but it's just like that that act of trying is important mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I think it's yeah the act of trying and also it it seems like in a lot of situations we have, um, I don't know, we can either be like, oh, this is not entirely clear. I'm just going to investigate with intensity and focus or um, you just shut down, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, and there's probably a lot of other options, but those I think are, are two pretty common ones. Like this is unfamiliar. I really want to, I really want to investigate. I really want to be present for it. Or this is unfamiliar. Oh, it's weird. Uh, I, it's too much um, and kind of shut off. And I've always been like, oh, this is unfamiliar. I really want to, I really want to go, go for it. And that's, I think what I, what I do in my practice. What this piece is called tar. So what is, what is the title 
what kind of significance does the title have to the to the musical sounds we're hearing? I kind of like the flutist in particular is making a lot of, you know, vocal utterances mm-hmm. that are kind of, I don't know. It reminds me of just spitting or like trying to like just being dismissive, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then the effects are kind of like these things that are are latched on and can't get it off. So like the performers are kind of like, get this stuff is like latching onto them or trying to get it off. Right. Um, and I think that in a lot of ways, if we're paying attention and also like you're in a s- not dissimilar situation to me, we have the same number of children uh-huh. and the same kind of overwhelming <laughs> lives. <laughs> and so you're like trying to think about the political landscape, how to be a good person, um, what you're going to do, how much you should do at home versus how much you owe your students and then your committee work. And then you're like, oh, and global warming. And then, oh, my kid, like my kids, I forgot I had a second one for a second. And you're just like, it's so much. And so um, I try to kind of make something that feels like that. Like it's just so much and stuff is just like sticky. And you can't, like, mm-hmm. you're like, oh, oh, I'm finally going to hear a little bit of flute without a bunch of gunk coming out of it. It's like, no, no, sorry. There's more gunk coming. <laughs> With children, there's always gunk. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> awesome. Well, let's listen to this now. So this, we'll be hearing the Collect Project. And this is Tar.
Let's talk about your last piece, and it's called Monstrous or Montress. How do you say it? Monstrous. Monstrous. Yeah. Um, and I'm finally gonna learn. Well, I say this. I've I've heard Keith's last name pronounced correctly multiple times, and I still cannot. And he, we have featured his performances on this on the podcast so many times, and I still get his name wrong. So. I'm sure you'll teach me how to say it and I'll promptly forget it. But this, is, I'm assuming it's a written for, or at least he's performing it, but it's Keith. Oh, I want to hear you say it. I'm not going to try. <laughs> <laughs> I've said it wrong so many times. Keith Kierkoff. Kierkoff. Okay. Because it, do, you, do you ever have that when sometimes there are just some things that no matter how many times you learn it correctly, you always end up questioning, wait, is it is it this way or that way? I know I, I know I've learned it 300 times, but it doesn't matter. Yeah. Now that you're saying this, I'm not 100 percent sure because <laughs> now I'm thinking of the other pronunciations that it could have. <laughs> right. It Because it, it could be more like a Kirkoff. Right. No, that's it. Now that actually sounds right. Keith Kirkoff. Kirkoff. Yeah. See, now you're never going to know. I know. That's the. <laughs> I bet like even if I asked him, he would give me like five different pronunciations. Anyway, um, this piece is for piano, seaboard block and computer. Now, the seaboard is a controller modeled after a piano keyboard, but with some really un piano features. So can you tell us about that controller and how you're using it for this piece? Yeah, so they Roly makes it. They call it. They have some fancy. I think they call it like five dimensional touch. <laughs> I think, but um, so like a regular MIDI keyboard, it knows when you press and when you release, and it knows how hard you press. It has a bunch of features that regular MIDI keyboards don't have. So it knows continuous pressure, which a lot of uh, MIDI keyboards have, but it knows it polyphonically. So. It knows continuous pressure on multiple keys, and it knows multiple keys position on the X and Y axis, so it can report the height on the key. And then if you press like a middle C or whatever, and then you slide, um, it will know that you press that C, um, but then you can pitch bend from there up or down, and you can do that polyphonically, so you can do that at more than one voice at a time, so you can like pitch bend up on one and pitch bend down on another. And obviously, since it's just data, it doesn't have to be pitch bend. That's just kind of intuitive when you slide up on a keyboard, it can uh -huh. be pitch bend. Um, but, so there's about three or four synthesizers that um, are in Max that respond to these dimensions of, of playing. Um, and yes, and it's written out a bit that, um, you know, continuous pressure can be written just like dynamics are for any like air or, or string instrument. Um, but the hard part is how do you tell them the height on the key? Yeah. Um, so I just, I used another line for that to say like, this is where the height on the key is. And then um, the glissing up and down um, on the Y axis, that can just be, you know, like glissandi from pitch A to pitch B. Mm -hmm. And you're, it seems like you're controlling a variety of different sounds using the seaboard. I mean, it's, it doesn't always sound like it's just purely piano sounds that, or I mean, I might, I might be hearing, hearing the wrong parts, but like what kind of, is it all just synthesis? That you're yeah, so there's a, a synthesizer that I would call after, because I teach in this music technology program, um, and the kids call it, like, when things have a strong filter on the attack that swishes, 
when the synth is attacked, they often call it an acid th- synthesizer. Okay. <laughs> so I call it an acid synthesizer, where every time a note occurs, um, there's kind of filter sweeping uh-huh. on it. And that's a, a kind of oscillator-based synthesizer, where it's just a combination of different um, basic waveforms into a more complex sound than with um, filtering. And, you know, you can make the filter depend on where put the on the height of the key so uh-huh. it can get like brighter when you're higher and darker when you're lower and then pressure is often like modulation um, like of the phase of the oscillators or of the of the amplitude of the oscillator so you can make it like gar like garble when you press harder and not garble when you don't press as hard and then there's a car plus strong algorithm which is like um that's right. it, yes i i definitely heard that in there okay yeah, um, which is uh, kind of like a uh, how often they physically model the sound of strings. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so there's that, and then um, there's a third one. Oh, the and the third one is just really sine tone with phase modulation because um, that, I use that for low sounds. And then uh, you know the is the is the seaboard just kind of place so he uh, the pianist has to kind of switch between playing the acoustic piano play, and playing that. In, in mid performance, are there every are there any uh, any times when you have him kind of doing both? Yeah, yeah, he plays yeah. both. Um, so the seaboard rise, which is the larger one, is pretty big, and it wouldn't work as well for this in this context. Mm-hmm. But he can put the small one. Um, he can push back the where the music sits, and then put that the block right in front of it on some foam. So it, you know, no danger to the piano. Right, so right. Piano technicians are very are fine with it um, and he can put pressure on it so he can it's like right there you know it's like um, right at his head level he can just play it um, or sorry right below his head level yeah like in front of the music and so you can play the both at the same time the thing that was very surprising to I think both of us is that um, it turns out being a trained pianist doesn't necessarily really help playing this weird thing that feels like you're pushing on someone's like thigh because it's right. like kind of like skin. Yeah, it's um, it doesn't help. It's a really like gummy kind of gummy feeling texture, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's not it's not um, it's not you do not apply to p- uh, good piano technique. So if you trained your whole life to apply good piano technique, then there's like this alien thing. Um, so uh, that was that was surprising because um, I don't have piano technique, so I could, you know, I, I did it. It's like, oh, I'm learning how to play this thing. But if you regularly hit something with your fingers in a very particular way all of the time, yeah. it's uh, much more challenging. Um, uh, so there was a, there's, um, it's a weird thing to play. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you were kind of talking about the different uh, synthesizers that the Seaboard is controlling. I would say in this piece in general, you have a fairly eclectic palette of sounds that the, you're using in the electronics. So, you know, some that are distorted, some that are pristine, some that are some that are almost like kind of reminiscent of like 8-bit video game sounds. So how do all of these different sounds work together for you in this piece? Um, well, I, I think <laughs> the main thing that I like that the electronics are doing in this is that the piano plays and then um, Monstrous is a graphic novel. There's like this beast living inside the the heroine and um, it like comes out of her shoulder because she doesn't have an arm there. It's all tentacly. Mm-hmm. And the whole, the whole, all the graphics are like super tentacly. So I like the idea of like this um, 
protagonist uh, as the pianist who's playing the piece. Um, and then the electronics are like this tentacly mess that's uncontrollable and hard to understand and um, erratic in its behavior. Um, and kind of like tentacly. So those 8-bit sounds, which do sound very much like video game because they are, they're, they're bit reduced yeah. and they're like these little clicks um, and that's cheap to make. Um, and I used it because this the piece with all this, the polyphonic synthesizers and like my, my two reverbs and all that stuff, it like runs at like 95% CPU. <laughs> and I wanted this on my computer. I, I don't, my uh, five years old computer. Oh, okay, but, um, okay. Uh, <laughs> Like, that's uh, I think dangerous. on Keith it's I think on Keith it's like 80 80 percent. Oh my god, that's um, yeah, that's up there. Yeah, but I I don't think it's bad for the, the computer. <laughs> yeah, um, it run it it it's doing a, a good bit at a time. So I wanted this thing, and I ended up making it cheaper and cheaper um, in terms of its CPU use, and that's part of how that came about. But I wanted like this kind of mass of sound, and so I think it's thirty two instances of of it to get to that kind of mass so that's a, a good number yeah yeah that'll that'll eat up the cpu definitely but i think it also kind of plays into that idea of you know having the the tentacle the the tentacle that's a fun word to say tentacle uh, thing coming out because each you know if you if you think about it like each tentacle almost if you look at an oct if you you know it, it Obviously, it's not this, but if you ever watch an octopus, it almost seems like every tentacle has kind of a mind of its own. And in a way, you're kind of representing like, oh, I have all of these different things, all of these different streams that are very independent, but somehow have have this kind of central force that's controlling them. Yeah, that, that's, that's, that's a good answer to the question that you asked, which is how are these things tied together? They're really tied together. <laughs> particularly visually when you watch is that there's this human that you're watching engage in action and everything comes from it. Mm -hmm. And the, what's coming from it is different amounts of kind of, I don't know, we call it alien or abstract from the thing that you would expect. And then, yeah, there's a lot of um, iteration of the same type of effects to get this tentacliness, but where each one has its own parameters that are, are sent to it. Um, so, uh, like lots of repetition. So there's like a flanger, but there's um, that's very chaotic um, for a flanger. It's more like a modulation delay with um, so pitches go all over the place, but there's like eight layers of it. Um, so I can turn on various amounts of layers and it can become very full or it can be very narrow. Um, and right. Yeah. So lots of tentacles, like you say, with the octopus. And that's the kind of exact kind of thing I'm imagining where there's this repetition, but with a variation that feels somewhat out of control. Um, where you can tell that things are related, but they're not necessarily moving together. You know, in, in I think in all the pieces that we've listened to, the way you combine instruments and electronics kind of reminds me of, this is weird to say, but it reminds me of Kaya Sariaho in a way. Um, I was in a masterclass with her once, and I, I don't even know if she said what I'm about to say explicitly, but it was what I wrote down in my notebook. And basically that was, a solo is never a solo. You always have something that is modif timbrely modifying it or augmenting it in some way. And you know, with tar, you were talking about some like sounds that just kind of stick to the uh to the live instrumentalists in the in the first piece there are a lot of sounds it, it's you know especially with the way you were talking about how the inter instrumentalists are pantomiming and they're and they're doing it uh to the to the rhythms of the electronics 
and um, how those electronics are also really often combined with the live instruments um, rhythmically. And in, and in this piece, I think it's the same thing where it's like there's you never you never truly get just a pure piano sound. It's always modified in some way. Is that is and it, yeah, there there are two or more things that are combining to form some sort of kind of like augmented piano or almost hyper instrument. Is that how you're thinking when you work, or is this is this kind of something that ends up happening for different reasons, or is there or is this something that is just kind of a part of who you are as a composer? Yes, I I think I, I may have been thinking about something similar uh recently which is i feel like a lot of pieces use electronics in similar ways where the electronics are highly subservient yep. and often sparse and i think that i think there's multiple reasons for that um uh including a lot of um just not knowing what to do with them uh, or why to do it um, but then I might be just, I might have just too much electronics all the time, but I like to think of, uh, uh, kind of the electronics as the bed, like of an orchestra performance, like the mm -hmm. strings used to be, they're always there. And for me, they make everything better and more interesting. Kind of just like, it's hard. It was seemed hard for composers not to just have the strings always there. Yeah. Um, and that's how I feel like where my oral imagination is right now. It's like, it's always there and it's better if it's there. And if it's not there, it's like a special moment. So lots of spectral density, um, a lot of the time, uh, because there's, and it's hard to find room for things. That's part of, I think the auto mixing stuff that we talked about a little bit earlier, mm -hmm. um, which is that it helps make room for the amount of stuff I want happening where the instrument can still kind of come to a four. Yeah, I mean the way the way you just talked about it, it really gives me kind of new perspective on it because you know, a lot of it seems like a lot of people when they are writing for say just a solo instrument and electronics, it ends up kind of being chamber music in a way. It's like the electronics are the piano that's backing up the solo violin and it it's it has that kind of scope with it as well. But you're really thinking about like you are making kind of almost orchestral arrangements with your, you know, in in a way your scope is kind of the scope of a concerto where your live instrumentalist is playing on a bed that is as complex or could be as complex as what you could get out of a, out of a full orchestra because you have just that many things that can that can do stuff. Yeah, I mean, I think I think I do kind of think of it like that. Um, I, I also I do think it's risky, which is that if you have a human on stage in a live performance, um, and there's a lot of other stuff going on, it can be risky. I think both in that the performer doesn't feel the same amount of validation because they feel like their their contribution isn't what they are used to it being, uh -huh. particularly given, um, as everyone will hear when they hear the pieces, it's really hard to music to play and takes a lot of time. And then sometimes, you know, you're partially not as present or apparent, even though you're doing this hard thing, which is the case, um, like you say, in a lot of music. But when you're like a soloist, people never expect to have their part be secondary. Right. Um, 
So I think that there's a there's a potential problem for performers and and the mentality of what it takes and then what the outcome is and that maybe you're not always um, kind of the dominant force. And then for the audience, it's weird to have the disembodied sounds be the dominant force. So I think it's a fine line, and I, I do try to make sure the instrumentalist kind of stays on top, I guess is the way way to put it. Um, but yeah, I, I like tons of sounds and tons of different sounds going on, and sometimes all that activity and diversity can certainly distra uh, distract um, from, the, from the performer. Well, let's listen to it now, and we're going to hear... <laughs> I'm afraid to say his name because, I mean, we just talked about it 10 minutes ago, but I think I'm already going to say it wrong again. But we're going to hear Keith Kirchhoff. Is that right? I think so. Okay. <laughs> Keith Kirchhoff playing Monstrous.
So uh, we're to the last question, the question that I always ask all the guests, uh, composers, musicians, artists that I have on. How did you come to music as something that you wanted to pursue for your life? Um, well, I think I, I, I wanted to do it pretty young, like 10 or 11. Um, and I was very dedicated. Uh, and I didn't know what I wanted to do, but I definitely spent more time writing music than other things. Um, it just kind of, I mean, it's kind of a boring answer, but it was kind of very natural. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, the more personal answer is I struggled a lot in school um, with things like spelling. Um, and I still struggle with it sometimes. Like I just, I just don't see that things are spelled wrong. Uh-huh. Um, and that music kind of had a, it just, it just was an escape from that. And I felt like I was pretty good at it and I liked playing piano and I liked making stuff up and I liked thinking about it and the kind of problems I had with reading and writing, I didn't have with reading music. Um, and so it was this thing that, uh, you know, the system that I got interested in and I just I really liked and then like I said before um or wait I think that may have been not part of the podcast conversation but um <laughs> we'll make kind it of went now. away yeah I went away from music to kind of uh do political activism um but then I I came back in my master's degree cool which is which is kind of a selfish thing to do um uh, given <laughs> the state of the world um but yeah uh, Chris it's, it's all your makes fault makes me it makes me happier. <laughs> yeah. I mean, if you're, you know, the, the people that do that kind of full time, it's, it's, it has to be just immensely hard work and very draining, but, um, you know, your own, your own sanity is worth something. So, yeah. Cool. Well, before we go, can you tell everyone where they could find more of your music or connect with you if they liked what they heard? Um, ChristopherBiggsMusic.com and uh, my contact is there but it's CWBiggs at gmail.com um, and basically all my every my, all, uh, almost everything I've written has uh, score up and uh, recording awesome thanks so much for doing this Chris thank you thanks for listening as always if you want to find out more about adjective new music or lexical tones please go to our website, www.adjectivenewmusic.com.